0: Your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com where travels come true. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X code assistant. AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code IBM. Let's create. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson, and I'm Holly Fry. And today we're going to talk about Charlie Parkhurst, who was a stagecoach whip who spent almost 20 years handling teams of horses over treacherous terrain at very high speeds. And then after his death in 1879, his friends who came to lay out his body discovered that he was anatomically female. And a note about the pronouns, because Charlie presented himself for his whole life as a man, we're going to use masculine pronouns when talking about him. That seems fair to me. Yes. Charlie was born in Lebanon, New Hampshire in 1812 and was probably named Charlotte Darkie Parkhurst. This is almost universally cited as true, but that name isn't really documented anywhere. It's also not clear what happened to Charlie's family, but he lived in an orphanage, probably either in New Hampshire or Massachusetts, until escaping, dressed as a boy at age 10. Uh, It probably would not have taken much to make this work Uh, At the time, especially in that kind of institutional setting, boys and girls would have been wearing similar clothing, probably overalls, and everyone's hair probably would have been cut short for the sake of both maintenance and louse control. Charlie's work with horses started right away. He got a job as a stable boy for a man named Ebenezer Balch in Worcester, Massachusetts. And in addition to mucking out the stalls, feeding and grooming the horses, he started to learn how to handle teams of horses. And when Ebenezer moved to Providence, Charlie went with him. Charlie's training as a driver started with the one-horse buggy, and he worked his way up to handling teams of six horses, which is a little difficult, actually. (laughs) That is a lot of animal to be in control of. Uh, And horses are very large, and they don't always realize how large and powerful they are. Yeah, So handling a, a team of six required a lot of skill and finesse. Uh, and he he developed a reputation for being a really skilled and reliable driver. Um, and that was known at the time as a whip. Uh, and in Providence, he became a very popular driver to carry people to balls and other social events. Uh, but after a while, Charlie moved south and he worked in a number of other states, including Georgia and Iowa. But all the while continuing as a stagecoach whip. So let's talk a little bit about stagecoach life for a minute. All right. So the stagecoach made its debut in England in the mid-17th century. By the 19th century, stagecoaches were the primary way to travel long distances in the United States and parts of Europe. They continued to be really the, like, the main way of going a long distance until they were gradually overtaken by railroads. And while the railroads were being built, stagecoaches would still carry people from the end of a line to the less accessible areas. And as we said, driving a stagecoach was a really, you know, quite a job. It was very demanding. Stagecoach drivers had to be able to deal with both the horses and the coaches, along with passengers, mail, any other cargo they were carrying, and all of the myriad of threats that would reveal themselves, including wild animals and outlaws and everything in between. So if you think of those things you've seen in Westerns or on Little House on the Prairie, like runaway teams, ambushes, dangerous terrain, attacks from people of all sorts, those things all really happened to stagecoaches. They were not exclusive to the fictional record. Yeah. So even those stagecoaches were a really uh, common way of of moving people from place to place all over the, the United States and Europe. They became this iconic part of the Old West (laughs) because traveling by stagecoach in the Old West was so inherently dangerous because the territory was uh, so much different from the more industrialized areas that stagecoaches were traveling in uh, other parts of the world. Um, Stagecoach driving was also physically grueling. One of the reasons that visits to family and friends lasted so long at the time was because getting there was really hard. Even on coaches that were outfitted with springs and suspensions, the ride was full of rocking and jostling, and it took about 24 hours to go 100 miles. And that was only if you had a good driver and places to change horses along the way. So whips had to be tough and nimble and trustworthy with people and cargo. Charlie developed a reputation for being one of the fastest and safest whips and for being skilled with a whip itself in that whip the cigar out of a man's mouth kind of way, like a marksman of the whip world, sort of. Yes. He also had a reputation for being a hard-drinking gambler with a mouth that was always stained with chewing tobacco. He was shorter than most of the other drivers, but he could stand his ground and hold his own. And he didn't talk much, but when he did, it was reported to be laced with profanity. So we have a character who was memorable to many of the people who met him. Indeed. He generally wore thick gloves, a buffalo overcoat, and blue jeans over trousers. Layers that were offering physical protection while also concealing the body. He also earned a few nicknames during his time as a whip, including Mountain, Cockeyed, and One-Eyed Charlie. These last two came from an injury. He was kicked in the face by a horse he was shoeing and lost an eye. And from then on, he wore an eye patch. And while very skilled, at least once, Charlie was robbed on the road. And after that, he started carrying a .44. Reportedly, the next time he was faced with a robber, he shot him without stopping. Yes, Which is, I mean, that's a movie moment. I know, so just keep going and take aim and fire. And keep well, and we we've, we've talked before how how often like the old west really does prove to be a whole lot like westerns that we think of as fictional. Yeah. Like, there was really a lot that was that it was, was it was called the wild west for a reason. Yes. So here's an account by Major A.N. Judd reported in the Santa Cruz Surf in 1917 and found thanks to the Santa Cruz Public Library. It recounts Charlie's application to drive a stagecoach for Ben Holiday of Council Bluffs, Iowa, where the treacherous terrain scared more whips off the job than robbers and the threat of attacks by Native Americans did. Judd made this report long after Charlie's death and the discovery of his biological sex. There were, perhaps, 50 applicants for the position that were open on the stage line. Ever-driven stage? How long? How near could you drive to the edge of a bluff with a sheer drop of 1,000 feet with perfect safety to yourself, your team, and passengers? These are some of the questions fired at the prospective drivers by Holiday. Many answered until nearer and nearer they got to the edge. Finally, one was willing to take a chance with half the tire over the edge on one wheel. About this time, Charlie's turn came around, and by this time he, she, was getting uneasy. After putting between her jaws a fresh chew, she closed her jackknife that had done duty for years, not only for cutting tobacco, but for mending harness or skinning a deer. She got up and had almost reached the door before saying over her shoulder, I wouldn't do it all for you, Mr. Holiday. I'd stay as far away from the edge of that cliff as the hubs would let me. And you are just the one I want, said Holiday. So that was Major A.N. Judd's written account. Uh, it may be somewhat apocryphal. Uh, but Charlie worked that job for three years without an incident. Yeah, and we should note that because it was his account that we were reading verbatim, that's why the pronouns that's why our went, pronouns have went swapped. female on yes. that one. But we will continue to refer to Charlie as a he. In 1851, Charlie moved to California, making the trip by ship with a land crossing at Panama. Stagecoach work was really booming in California at that time due to the gold rush. A lot of people needed to be moved around uh, and to get from place to place. But at the same time, there were also a lot of people who were looking to be whips because they were, you know, miners who were out of work because their, their attempt to mine had failed. Uh, fortunately, skilled and experienced whips were still really sought after. So Charlie's skill and reputation put him in a really high demand as a stagecoach whip. In particular, Charlie moved to take a job with Jim Birch and Frank Stevens, who were starting the California Stage Company. This became one of the largest stagecoach companies in the U.S. It maintained 28 coach lines and covered almost 2,000 miles of roads. Charlie also worked for Wells Fargo, which was founded in 1852, and he became known as one of its best whips. Uh, And he also worked for most of the other stagecoach companies in California at some point. Sometime late in his driving career, Charlie's sex was nearly discovered. He became drunk while making a delivery of liquor to Andrew Jackson Clark at Pleasant Valley Ranch. And Andrew's son put Charlie to bed and then reported back to his father that Charlie was, in fact, a woman. Andrew told his son not to tell lies about other people, and the story did not go any further. Which is fortunate and surprising. Yes, it stopped there. Um... In the late 1860s, due to the physical demands of being a whip, combined with complaints of rheumatism and a general drop in stagecoach demand due to the increasing prevalence of railroads, Charlie retired from stagecoach driving. For a little while, he ran a stagecoach stop where drivers could change out their horses. Then he ran a ranch and raised chickens and cattle, working with a partner named Frank Woodward. Charlie and Frank would also occasionally work cutting and hauling wood when they need a little extra money. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com/slash paper. Privileges and start earning points toward your next day. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. In 1868, Charlie registered to vote under the name Charlie Parkhurst. Although he registered and presumably voted using a male name, he is often cited as the first woman to vote in California. And while he is occasionally cited as the first woman to vote in the U.S., there were definitely women who voted in other states prior to that time because varying state laws had allowed them to. Yeah, there are examples of women who were able to vote because they owned property, which met a criterion Mm -hmm. for for voting, uh, or for other reasons. But um, he may have been the first woman to vote in California. He died outside of Santa Cruz at the age of 67 from cancer of the mouth possibly brought on by that long history of chewing tobacco. Uh, he willed some of his possessions to a boy named George Harmon, who had looked after him in his last weeks. When the body was being laid out, it was discovered, as we said at the top of the episode, that he was anatomically a woman. This was a surprise to everyone, including Frank, who had known Charlie for 20 years. Upon this revelation, he, quote, waxed profane. Yes, everyone was astonished. Um. There, there are two astonishing things about this uh, this particular story, and and one of them is having been able to keep that secret for so long. We've talked about people who have, uh, like in our Sarah Emma Edmonds episode, we talked about how, all the various ways that Sarah Emma Edmonds was able to adopt a disguise and keep it up for a few years during a time of war. This was a um, lifelong yeah. living uh, as a gender different from... What he had been born as, which a lot of people have noted at the time is is would have been extremely hard, not only from just being able to do that without discovery and then just psychologically hard uh, would have been a very lonely life. Yes. Uh, from a tombstone that was erected by the Pajaro Valley Historical Association, quote, Charlie Darkey Parkhurst, 1812 to 1879. Drove stage over Mount Madonna in early days of Valley. Last run, San Juan to Santa Cruz. Death in cabin near Seven Mile House revealed One-Eyed Charlie a woman, the first woman to vote in the U.S., November 3, 1868. There's also a historical marker in the Soquel, California, fire station, which says on this site, on November 3, 1868, was cast the first vote by a woman in California, a ballot by Charlotte, quote, Charlie Parkhurst, who disguised herself as a man. Following his death, all kinds of rumors spread about who Charlie was and his history. Newspapers carried stories that were somewhere between unflattering and cruel, with an undertone of deviance. Some of the conjectures about what had led Charlie to live his life as a man included the jilted lover or rape victim conjecture and one person who examined the body claimed to find evidence that Charlie had given birth to a child at one point as well as a child's dress and shoes among Charlie's possessions but all of this is conjecture and speculation yeah a lot of it was really rumor and and really vicious and seems to be you know the the role of a stagecoach whip uh was kind of like being a star athlete Right. right. If, if somebody was a really good stagecoach whip and had made a name for himself, then this was somebody that, that people knew of and, and respected for all kinds of prowess. And so a lot of the news reports that uh, came about after his death were really targeted at undermining that whole idea. Yeah. Um, so another complete speculation is Charlie's reasons for living as, as a man. We don't know if he did so because he felt himself to be a man or if living as a man just presented him with freedoms that he would not have had as a woman. But either way, this choice was a really dangerous one, um, which is actually not very different from it is today, when people who live their lives differently from their biological sex, whether they identify as transgender or in some other way, are really at personal physical risk if this difference is discovered. Yeah, I mean, it, as you said, it's really quite remarkable that Charlie managed to maintain the male identity throughout his life. For pretty much his whole adulthood, as far as we know from about age ten. Yeah. Uh and as you said that had to have been such a lonely life. Yeah. That one of the there are many, many historical novels <laughs> about um, Charlie. And uh they really they all seem to assume different things about his life. Um, there are, like, novels that sort of assume, and I want to be clear, I have not read them. I've more read synopses of them and, and read the author's accounts of having written them. Some of them sort of assume that Charlie was uh, a woman who wanted freedom that she would not have had. So she disguised as a man. And then there are other writers who assume, um, that Charlie, uh, felt himself to be a man. And so he lived as a man. And we don't actually know. Uh, yeah, those are all guesses. These are all complete guesses. Um, but a couple of the writers th- who have talked about the story have have mentioned that, um, you know, we have had several episodes that have come up about people who have lived a celibate life. Mm-hmm. Uh, judging by how shocked everyone was to discover that Charlie was anatomically a woman, Charlie probably also did live a celibate life for many, many years. Yeah, Which... uh many people would consider to be a very lonely existence. Mm -hmm. So simultaneously a a rare accomplishment and also kind of sad to me and a bit of a mystery. Yes. If we ever invent a time machine, that's the stop I would like to make. Although I don't know how you approach someone and go, hey, I know your secret. Why are you keeping that? Uh, yeah, <laughs> especially someone who works as a stagecoach whip. That I would will be shoot you and keep going. That would be a rude question. Now it would be a rude question anytime. Yes, I have um, to figure out a really, really smart and respectful gambit at that point. Right, right. But you know, if this is a story that interests you, there are many, many historical novels to choose from that have different angles on this story. Yeah. I simultaneously like the idea of driving a stagecoach and do not like the idea of constantly jostling yeah I don't I don't have stagecoach romance now at all with maybe rattlesnakes and bears and stuff that, that part is less upsetting to me than just <laughs> the jostling discomfort yeah not a very comfortable way to get around yeah Privileges and start earning points toward your next day. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. Do you also by chance have some listener mail for us? I do. So my listener mail, I wish I had asked this listener how to pronounce this name. It's, I'm going to guess either Juna or Juana. And here's the letter. Dear Tracy and Holly, I love the podcast and, for the most part, find it extremely accurate. Thank you. Now we're going to talk about some time that we were not accurate. However, on this occasion, I have found that you made a slight mistake when talking about Horace Fletcher and his famous or infamous Fletcherism. I recently listened to your podcast on John Harvey Kellogg, in which you briefly mentioned Fletcherism. In the podcast, you say that Horace Fletcher came up with the 32 cheese per bite. This is a common misconception. In fact, it was British Prime Minister William Gladstone who said that. Horace Fletcher believed in masticating bites of food until they were completely liquefied to get all the nutrients possible from the food. Fletcher claimed that he once chewed a bite of shallot 722 times before, quote, involuntarily swallowing it. (laughs) Of course, his theory has no scientific evidence, as you said in the podcast. As you can imagine, fletcherizing food is rather tedious, which is why John Harvey Kellogg hired a quartet to sing a chewing song to the patients in his sanitarium during their lengthy and otherwise silent dinners. One stanza of the chewing song goes like so. I choose to chew because I wish to do the sort of thing that nature had in view. Before bad cooks invented savory stew, when the only way to eat was to chew, chew, chew. I think there is a rendition of that song in The Roads of Whale, Bill. I seem to remember it. I yeah, vaguely do as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the letter goes on. I thought this was incredibly entertaining and certainly worth sharing. Mary Roach includes an outrageous chapter about Fletcherism in her book, Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal. Again, I love the podcast. I feel a little bit smarter every time I listen to it. Please keep up the good work. So first of all, thank you so much for sending this letter. Uh, second of all, yeah, we did totally make that mistake, and that uh, misconception is so widespread. That multiple, it shows up in source material a yes, lot. Multiple of my sources repeated that mistake, right, so they just they're similar in idea, and they get conflated in the yeah in the research yeah. for a lot of people. Yes, but, yeah. yes, this letter is absolutely right. William Gladstone is the person who came up with, uh, or at least is known for coming up with thirty-two chews per bite, seven hundred some chews. That sounds terrible. I don't have that kind of time. And it sounds gross to me. <laughs> it does to me, too. Like, I have a certain relationship with food. And yes. I love it. I think I wouldn't love it so much anymore if I approached it that way. If, if a quartet had to be hired to sing to you about chewing? Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I also, when I wrote back, I, I said that I now feel extra bad that uh, our colleagues... Um, from Stuff to Blow Your Mind actually interviewed Mary Roach on their podcast and they offered to let me borrow a copy of Gulp when I said that we were talking about John Harvey Kellogg because he's mentioned in that book. We just ran out of time before it was time to record and so I missed I would have had it right had I read the book. Older and wiser. Yep. Older and wiser and not requiring people to sing to me while I chew my food. Miserable. I know, <laughs> don't like that idea at all. If you'd like to write to us about this or any other topic, we are at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash stuff, on Twitter at Mist in History and at com. And we are still pinning away on our Mist in History pin board, if you go search for that. Uh, If you would like to learn more about this and other related topics, you can come to our website and search for the word Wild West. You're going to find the article 12 Renowned Women of the Wild West, which does include a page on Charlie Parker's. You can find all of this and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. All year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit,